This morning's reading is taken from Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 45. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in a lonely place. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. We're talking about, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, of course, Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 45. And this morning we're looking at the compassion and the prayer life of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're looking at him as a personal Jesus. As a matter of fact, as Don just read, at the end of that, as you get to verse 36, it, uh, Simon comes to Jesus and said, look, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you, and that's true whether we realize it or not. Everyone is looking for a savior. Everyone is looking for a purpose, for a meaning. Uh, as we talk about prayer, I want to make sure that you're aware that uh, <clears throat> as you turn in your prayer requests, our staff prays over each of those needs. Uh, every Tuesday morning we meet and have a time of prayer where we meet and pray over the needs and then our elders pray as well. And then also on Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m., uh, there's a group that meets in West Point, uh, our intercessory prayer team that prays over the needs of our church. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, you can just come uh, at 6 a.m. on Wednesday mornings over in West Point, and we invite you to be a part of that. As we look at our text today, <clears throat> as we look at the book of Mark, Mark is a, a book of apologetics in the sense that it proves and it states clearly who Jesus is, and it lets us know and gives us no doubt of his claims. He performs miracles, fulfills prophecy. He does things that only God could do. Only the promised Messiah would be able to do. And so as we look at this text, uh, we can know and we can have faith that God Almighty has come and provided a way, that he was Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Yeshua HaMessiah. And this text makes it pretty clear. It starts here in verse 35. It says in chapter 1, Very early in the morning when it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. What we learn is that each day Jesus is going to minister, he always starts his day off in prayer. It is not just something that Jesus does. It is the foundation of who he is. It is the foundation of his faith. To take time, if Jesus, who being fully God and fully man, would take the time to pray each day. 
And it seems like it's not a short time of prayer because he's up while it's still nighttime. That's what we would call it. You call it early in the morning. For most of it, it's just called nighttime. And um, he's up early in the morning praying, seeking the heart of God. At his busiest times, he's praying. So many of us, you know, when we get real busy and things start happening, whether it's good or bad, the first thing that leaves our life is prayer in quiet time before God, but not for Jesus, because it was the essence of who he was. As a matter of fact, it was so significant and it was so different than what the people were accustomed to that his disciples asked him, Jesus, teach us how to pray. If you would, turn with me. Let's take just a moment and look at Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, in verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God knows what you need before you ever ask Him. And the disciples have been wondering, you know, we've prayed all our lives. We've heard others pray. Other religions pray. They they babble, they yell, they scream, they wail, they chant. But Jesus, there's something different about the way that you pray. And it's obvious that the power of God is upon you. Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus gives a model. He doesn't say you have to use these words. These are the words that you use. So make sure you get the code right. You know, in the Bible, there are descriptions and prescriptions. There are things that are described so that we have an idea of how they should go. And this is an example. Let me describe for you. Let me give you a model. Let me give you just a little brief outline, some things that you can pray for, some principles. But it doesn't mean that this is the prescription. You have to pray it just like this. And this is the way it's to be done. But he does give a description because the disciples have asked. It's interesting what he does right off the bat. He says, this is then how you should pray. And what we'll see is the first 50% of his prayer, the first half of his prayer has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. Because, see, the principle of prayer is always this. It's to get not God, not to get what we want. To know his will and to know him more intimately. So he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus starts off with adoration. And he says, Father, matter of fact, in the Aramaic, this is what it's, how it would be translated, Daddy. Daddy, Abba. Matter of fact, we see it in uh, Mark chapter 14. Daddy. It's an intimacy. Right off the top, he, he gives an intimacy where people can understand. And he says, I, I want you to know. And every time he prays, he starts off, Daddy, Father. It's an orientation. If you don't get anything else, you want to recognize that our God, our Father in heaven is just that. He, he's a daddy. He's a father. He's a good father. Some of you might say, well, you know, I don't really know what a good father's like. I didn't really have a good father growing up. Yeah, you do know what a good father is. Okay? You, you, if he's that bad, then do what he didn't do. All right? Uh, the truth of it is we all know what a good father is. It's someone who is loving. It's someone who's kind. It's someone who disciplines. It's someone who is wise, who we can seek wisdom and gain understanding from. That's what a great father is. We know what a good father is. You know, Troy uh, Miller, one of our elders, he didn't really have a father. His dad was an alcoholic and, and left him at an early age. But he was a great dad. You don't necessarily have to have a great dad to know what a great dad looks like, what a great dad would be like. And that's our heavenly father. 
So you don't have to worry what your image was. He's the best. And when we come to him, we come to him as our heavenly father. And we come to him in that intimacy of daddy who knows and cares, who understands, who disciplines, who wants what's best for us. And not only does he want what's best for us, he absolutely knows what is best for us. Holy is your name. Adoration. And then acceptance. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Daddy, I want your will to be done. Your kingdom to come. God, I'm praying not my will, but your will be done. We mentioned earlier, or I mentioned earlier, in, uh, in Mark chapter 14, I believe it's verse 36, when Jesus is at the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he pray? He says, Lord, if it be thy will, then let this cup pass from me. He was talking about the cross. He's talking about the crucifixion, about the death. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That's exactly what he's praying here. He's praying it when he's teaching, and then he's praying it before he's dying. God, not my will, but your will. He's giving it to us here. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. God, I want it to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he asks, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. God, give me the bread that I need for today. I know you're not promising what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, or next month, but today, God, would you emotionally, physically, psychologically, psychologically, spiritually, financially supply for me today? God, I want to draw upon the mercies of today. This was given to us in the book of Exodus, the example. Remember when the children of Israel had left Egypt? They're wandering in the desert, and they're crying out for food, and God gives them a blessing called manna. And it literally means, what is it? It's manna. And he supplies their daily bread on a daily basis, and he gives them these, these instructions. He goes, look, I'm going to provide for you your daily bread, your daily manna, but it's just going to be for the day. And so if you try to hoard it, and get more than you need, it's just going to rot, except the day before the Sabbath. And so sure enough, God began to supply the manna. And some would go and they'd get, I want to get enough for three or four days in case the things don't work out, in case he doesn't remember, in case he forgets. And they get it, and then it'd just stink the next day, okay? It would rot, except for the day before the Sabbath. And God was teaching his children that day, hey, trust me for your daily bread. So many times in our culture, here's what we want to do. Even as evangelical Christians, we want to, you know what, let's just get as much as we can. Let's hoard all we can because I want to be in control in case something happens. And then I'll trust you, God. And then I'll secure myself and insulate myself and I'll be good. But you really haven't insulated yourself at all. You really haven't taken power at all because you still can't control disease. You can't control an accident. You really just buy into a farce that you can control everything when you can. That's one of the reasons Jesus teaches us to give and to give of our resources so that we might trust him, so that he might provide our daily bread, where we might recognize that everything we have comes from his hand. So he says, give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. You know, you want to know if your faith is real? Here's a great place to start. How are you doing on forgiveness? Oh, we all say, God, forgive me of my sins. 
What about forgiving others when they sin against you? Boy, that kind of really shows us the validity of our faith. It shows us what we're made of when we're forced to forgive those who take advantage of us. Those who have wronged us and hurt us. And then he says, and lead us not into temptation. He gives an adherence here. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now let's turn back to our text in Mark chapter 1. As Jesus has showed us how to pray, he goes and he does it. And in verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus is like, doesn't respond the way that preachers would respond. I mean, every preacher wants a crowd. You know what? And everybody's coming, Jesus. Everybody's looking for you. We've got a great big crowd over there. And then what does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, let's go somewhere else. What? What do you mean go somewhere else? I mean, God, they're here. They're listening. They're ready. Let's pass the offering plate, for goodness sake. I am sick of eating this unleavened bread. I mean, Lord, we've been following you. It's about time. He goes, oh, no, let's go. Let's, let's move on. Let's go somewhere else to a nearby village so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. I've come to preach the good news. I've come to preach that the Messiah has come. The good news that your sins can be forgiven. I've come to let you know that God has heard the prayers of His people and He has sent the Yeshua Hamasiah. I'm here. And so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and delivering the Mount of Demons. And a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. A man with leprosy. Boy, if there was one word that sent fear into the hearts of that culture of that day, it was leprosy. Now, yes, there were skin diseases that sometimes got uh, conglomerated into leprosy, but they would soon go away. And that was the whole purpose that the priest would say, okay, let's, let's check out for seven days, come back in seven days, and we'll see how it is. And so they'd go through that process, and if it got better, then it was psoriasis or something else. But if it continued to spread, and the skin turned white, and the hair began to turn, to turn white, then they would know, you know what, this is what we call today Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease. It's, it's an ugly disease. It still, still exists today although greatly eradicated in some parts of the world. In the United States, there's only about 200 to 250 people that have this, and they're being treated, and it, it stops the disease where it is. It doesn't replace fingers or any, anything else, but it stops the disease. But in a lot of third-world countries, uh, you know, there's still over 250,000 people that, they, that are known uh, that have the disease. They're not as able to get a hold of the medication, and you see what happens. Uh, and even though there's hope today, in that day, it was the kiss of death. And not only did it mean death, it had a lot of other stigmas that went with it, and it had a lot of other cruel and hurtful things. You know, if you had a, an internal disease you were dying of, your family would be right there. People would be praying over you. If you had leprosy, you were ostracized. You couldn't go to the synagogue. You certainly couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't go into your house. You couldn't enter the city. You couldn't socialize. Uh, matter of fact, you had to be up to 10 feet from someone, and if the wind was blowing, the, um, the Talmud said you had to be 150 feet away. 
Some rabbis taught that you carry rocks, and if you see a leper and they get too close, you throw rocks at them because it's the most dreaded disease. And certainly that was probably a punishment of God for you to have something like that. So we stay away from the lepers. As a matter of fact, this is what they're to say, and if they don't say it, then they are to be stoned. Unclean! Unclean! Because you didn't want anybody else getting that, so they were required by law to shout out when they saw someone that came within invisibility. Unclean! I'm unclean! And people would grab their kids and they would cover them and they'd go the other way. So not just physically, but socially. There was no one. There was no one to whatever touch you or even converse with your family. You might talk to them from a long distance at best. You're cut off. And you're forced to wander around scavenging. That's where this man has been. Probably for at least a year, if not years. His leprosy has progressed this far. And he came and he begged him. He came upon his knees in a spirit of worship and humility. And what does he say? He said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Matter of fact, in Matthew, or in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, the same story. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He recognizes who Jesus is. And he says, if you're willing. He didn't say, he didn't come up and goes, you know what? You've been saying, you've been preaching this message. I know you can have the power to heal people. I, I claim it, and I'm going to demand that you heal me. No, that's just arrogance. That's not biblical, okay? He comes in humility, recognizing, he goes, I, I know you are Lord. I, I know that you can. I know you don't have to. It would be an act of grace, but I'm asking you. And he says, if you're willing, if it's your will, then I ask that you do it and make me clean. And filled with compassion, Jesus, Jesus reaches out his hand and catch what he says, does here. And he touches the man. He touches him. What? You know what happens if you get within six feet, six to ten feet of a leper? You're, you're unclean. If you touch him, you're automatically unclean. You're now excluded from the synagogue. You're out now quarantined. You're now forced to be out until you can prove that you are clean. And that's a process. So the one who is clean and pure Touches the one who is unclean. And the one who is unclean, it says, is healed and made clean. But Jesus now, by Levitical law, by Talmudic law, is considered unclean. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become righteous. He who was clean and pure became unclean. Jesus said, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone. Now, I've had people ask me this the last couple of weeks. What's Jesus keep saying? Don't tell anybody what you heard. <laughs> don't tell anybody. Why does Jesus keep doing this? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Number one. Uh, Jesus, in that day, <clears throat> Jesus has begun to certainly heal, and he's begun to do miracles, and crowds have begun to follow. But in that day, in that culture, 
There was a very common expression we know from extra biblical writings. If we go back and look at the historical writings uh, before Jesus that went like this. And every Jewish man and woman would probably use this expression a couple of times a week, if not daily. Every boy and girl, was they were very familiar with this expression. And it went like this. When the Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes, he'll get rid of all the, the Romans. And they'll no longer oppress us. When the Messiah comes, we won't have to pay those taxes. When the Messiah comes, we'll be able to worship freely. When the Messiah comes, we'll be put in our rightful place. When Messiah comes. Everybody was greatly anticipating when Messiah would come. And Jesus knows this. Most people, they thought about him politically, how he would restore them. And how they'd start a revolution. And they would annihilate the Romans. Many, the zealots, that was their whole mentality. And they were waiting for a Messiah. And they were ready to make someone a Messiah. And many think Simon was, was a zealot of that nature. But there were others who simply would just say, you know what? If I can just get healed, if I can just get around somebody, I just want to be a part of that crowd. Jesus has already said, hey, I didn't just come to heal people. I came to preach the gospel. I came to give them the truth. I came to give them the message of salvation, which is much bigger than simply physically getting healed on this earth. I want you to spiritually be healed for eternity. For eternity. I want you to become clean for eternity. I want you to experience the salvation that will only come through me. So Jesus knows that once this message begins to be shared, that there are many that will try to seek to force him into their paradigm of what they desire and what they want. But Jesus knows his appointed time. And will not be forced into it. So he said, see that you don't tell anyone, but what happened? Oh, what, what we do when we're sinners. We, he goes out and he begins to tell everybody. He says, uh, go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. I want you to go and I want you to offer up the sacrifices. There's, you're supposed to take two doves. And one dove will be sacrificed. The blood will be sprinkled upon you seven times. And then the other bird will be set free. And then you'll be quarantined for seven days. And the priest will come and re-inspect and see if you've been totally healed, if you've been cleansed. And so he said, I want you to go and I want you to take that to the priest, the health inspector, the priest, the one who teaches the law, the one who has spiritual authority of you, the one who's taught that Messiah would come. And he will know. This is only a miracle that Messiah could do. You know, my guess is that priest hadn't had a lot of business on certifying people cleansed from leprosy. Okay? He hadn't been able to do that sacrifice. I'm sure he had studied it when he was in um, priest school, uh, in rabbi school. And they had studied they'd studied the Levitical law. He had memorized it. But I bet you money he hadn't had to use it. So when someone comes and goes, I'm cleansed. Remember me? I was the leper. I was Johnny. And Jesus... The rabbi, Yeshua HaMessiah, he, he's healed me. And the priest would have no recourse but to recognize this is a miracle that only the Messiah could do. He says it's a testimony. Instead, he went out and began to tell everybody. He began to freely speak and spread the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him wherever he was. As a result, 
This man is cleansed. He's made clean. He's made whole. And now he can go back into town. He can go to the priest. In a few days, he'll be able to enter the synagogue again. He'll be reunited with his family. Everything will be restored. He'll be included. Isn't it interesting that the one who was unclean is made clean, is now restored, and now can enjoy his family, now can go into the restaurants and go into the markets and go into town. But the one who is pure and holy now is cannot go anymore. Jesus is now forced to be in the Greek, the Aramis, the desert, the lonely places. Jesus is forced to dwell on the outside. The leper is now on the inside because Jesus became an outsider. Because Jesus took upon the disease. Because he touched him. And because now of his fame and now because of people's own agenda, he's forced to be in the lonely place, in the deserted area. But yet still there would be those who would seek him. Now Jesus, who's preaching in the villages and the rural areas where you don't go if you're important, you don't go if you want a, a big crowd. Jesus spends his time there. So, here's the question. As we look back at the very first text, or the very first verse, seeking in prayer, in Jesus' compassion, we see the model of, Lord, not your will, but thy will. We see Jesus touching and cleaning, cleansing. We see Jesus offering the sacrifice and then we see Jesus taking upon the position of a sinner so that that sinner may be made clean. You know, what we ultimately learn is this, is that it's not our will, but it's his. It's about his kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about seeing the big eternal picture, even in our pain, even in our suffering. It's about trusting that God is ultimately in control, even when it costs me, even when it goes against common logic, when it goes against common and conventional wisdom to trust him. That's real faith. I I want to let you hear a little testimony of faith like that. And uh, someone who's a couple that's going currently through a situation of that nature. And I'm going to invite them to come and share. Warren and Julie, if you would come at this time. Hi, um, my name is Warren Reichel, and this is my wife, uh, Julie. Um, and this is Timothy right here. Um, but we, we're walking through a, a very uh, difficult situation right now. Um, last uh, November, uh, we went in for our 20-week 20, 20 appointment um, to find out if we were having a boy or a girl. Um, and we were really excited about that. We were very excited about having a, a, a kid. And um, when we had the sonogram, we got really bad news. Um, we found out that uh, his heart um, has only two chambers um, and um, will not be compatible with life, um, and that his brain um, has some deformities and it's not 
working properly, and there's some some other things that are wrong with them. Um, and then that, that was extremely hard to hear. And then a, a week later, um, we went in and had a few more tests and found out that he has uh, trisomy 13, um, which is a kind of a genetic disorder um, that causes multiple problems. Um, and just the bad news that he is not really compatible with life. Um, and that from the medical perspective, um, that he, um, if he does live, it will only be for a few days or a few hours. Um, but there's really no no chance that he's going to be living for, for years or to have a, a long, normal life. Um, and so we were, we were pretty devastated. Um, and we were really shocked and and hurt and um just going going through a very difficult time um, in our lives, um, and so we, we just kind of had to walk through this very difficult time and really lean on God um, and His promises and His truths um, to give us encouragement uh, through the, through this difficult time. Um, and God has has really been gracious to us, um, and He's shared truth with us and and given us. Uh, the encouragement that we need from our friends and um, from him personally, um, and so we had we had to make a, a decision, um, and we chose um, life for Timothy. Um, we chose to continue this this pregnancy, um, even though we had a pretty dark um, prognosis, and we're going to continue through this journey together. Um, we don't know what's going to happen. The, the, the doctors can't tell us this is what's going to happen. And so we've been praying um, that um, for a miracle. And a lot of our friends have been praying with us for, for a miracle because um, we would like nothing better to just spend time uh, with, with Timothy here on earth. Um, but we, we trust and we know that um, even if he does pass away, that we are confident, um, we are assured that we will spend time with Timothy in heaven, um, we will get to um, spend eternity with him because, because of what Jesus did on, on this earth. He saved us and gave us salvation, and we can we can have confidence and trust in that. Um, and so this journey has been very, very difficult for us, um, for both of us, but God has been uh, near to us. As it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Um and that, that is the blessing. Um, the blessing is that he comforts us and that he is close to us and that um, that he is real and he gives us uh, the hope that we need uh, through each day. Um, I think it's long. Okay. Um, so in the beginning, when we first found that out, um, it was really, really tough. And um, I don't think I could see... Um, how I was going to walk through this. I mean, I thought, I don't know, how am I going to do this for the next four months? Um, I mean, you know, when you're pregnant, everyone asks you about being pregnant. No, oh, are you having a boy or a girl? And, you know, ask you a million questions, not meaning anything by that. Um, and I just remember thinking, I don't I don't know how I can do this. Um, and I didn't think that I could. And God just began to speak to me um, through Scripture um, I began to read through Psalms the first week we found out, and I just saw over and over again where he says, God's our refuge, God's our strength, God's our stronghold. Um, and my favorite verse, read that actually a lot, but hold on. 
I dropped it. Okay. <laughs> um, Psalm 62, 5 and 8 says, Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Um, and God just began to say, pour out your hearts to him. You know, and that's what Juan's talking about today in prayer, that God calls us to pray to him when we can't do what, um, you know, when it seems impossible for us to do on our own, that God says, if you'll pray to me, then I will give you the strength that you need. And daily, he has given us our daily bread. He has given us the strength that we've needed. Um, he's given me the words to share when people ask about being pregnant. Um, he's given me peace um, in the midst of sorrow and joy in the midst of sorrow. And he's truly answered prayers um, already um, and worked a miracle, I would say, in my life um, and been closer to me than um, I think I've ever felt him. And I think, too, um, you know, I haven't walked through a whole lot of difficulty in my life. I had um, a grandmother with cancer and a few things like that. But um, this was definitely the most difficult thing that I've gone through at this point. Um and God just said, Julie believed Romans 8:28 when things were good, that, you know, God works all things together for good for those who love him. He believed Jeremiah 29:11 that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. You've believed that your whole life, and you've memorized that verse. But are you going to actually believe it when things are bad, um, when things aren't good? Um, and it's still true. God has promised to use this for good in our lives um, and that his plan is good. And so we can trust in that um, and we believe in that. And that's our hope, that he's promising to use it for good. It doesn't mean that it's been easy. Um, and I don't know how I'm not bawling right now. That's God's faithfulness right there. Um, and there have been days of many tears and of sorrow and sadness, but we trust that God has a plan that's good for Timothy and that he is in control of his life. Um, and through prayer, and he has gotten us through this. And so we um, just want to encourage you guys that um, whatever you're walking through, it may not be the same thing, but that God promises he's going to use it for good, and that he promises to be our refuge and strength if we will trust him and allow him to do that for us. So, okay. Not my will, God, but yours. And I don't know if you caught that. Um, as we, I was talking to him before, you know, there was a point where the specialist said, you know, you might want to consider terminating this because that's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. So you might want to just take advantage of that opportunity. And, you know, we say we believe in God, I trust you, but what about when it slams us in the face? When it's harder than anything we could have imagined, will we still trust what we still believe? Will we still be like Job, Lord, though you slay me, yet I'll trust you. I'm grateful uh, for, this, for a faith like Julian and Warren's that when the hardest decision of life was to be made, they chose to live by faith and not by sight, not by feeling. That's what a real faith is. It's willingly going into the Aramis because that's where the path of life has led you, led you into a lonely place. But yet still, I trust you. 
Still will I seek your heart, O God. Where are you today? Have you accepted Christ by faith and said, God, not my will, but thy will? Are you still waiting for him to come through on certain things before you will fully submit? What about you, believer? Are you still saying, God, not my will, but thine, no matter what it costs? That's the true test of discipleship. Let's pray. For just a moment, I want to invite you to just seek the heart of God. Invite Him to speak to you. And in a few moments, if you need prayer, you're welcome to come. And uh, and then at the end, I'm going to have Julian Warren up at the front. If you feel led to come up and pray over them, pray God's healing and mercy and power upon them, then, then you're welcome to that. If, again, if you have a prayer request, if you need prayer, I'm going to ask a few of our leaders to come down at the end of this service to pray from our intercessory prayer team and others who would come and be available to pray. For just a moment, invite God to speak to you. Adore Him. Ask for His kingdom to come. Ask for His will to be done.